So welcome everybody again. Uh, this is episode 0004, I guess, depending on which one I get edited and put out first. Uh, and I'm here with uh, Luis Fernandez uh, talking about military transition, uh, transition from military to civilian life. Uh, Lewis is the author of two books, Keep on Leading and Conus Battle Drills. I've only personally read the first uh, introductions to both books. Um, unfortunately, they weren't on Audible, and maybe we can fix that here in the near future. Who knows? Uh, but that's usually how I take in my books. Um, Lewis has been in the Army from 2004 to 2012. He got out as a captain, and he was an infantry ranger. Uh, spent two tours, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, so 24 months total, came home with a bronze star. Uh, he's originally from Florida and currently lives in Arizona with his wife and his children. And uh, with that, welcome to the show. Thank you for, for coming on here today. Thanks, man. You're not the first person that's mentioned the audible thing to me. You know, I've tried recording it. And then I like, have you seen those memes when you're like, you, you hear your voice and you're like, Oh, you know, like, <laughs> so I, I do it. I'm like, man, it's, it's much better when I don't, I don't say it. So, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe if we know somebody that uh, wants to do that and uh, record it on my behalf, I'd be happy to do that. But uh, I don't know. There's also a time aspect to it. Yeah. It takes a while. It's not, not easy. If I could find a quiet booth to do it in, I would probably sit down and do it. There's a couple other books that I'd like to do that with as well. So you're currently uh, independent business consultant, and that's really mainly uh, the the precipice for this whole entire conversation. Uh, talking about military retirement, military people getting out, and I think the most important part that people don't really address in between all those topics is um, the difficulties and the 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 nuances of transition from military to civilian life, whether it be your personal life stuff or your business life stuff. So that's what we want to try to get in today. Uh, and I'll just kind of go through that. So how did you first get in the military? And can you give me any details about the, the physical place, the, the time frame, and also the, the thoughts that were going on in your head when you decided to get into the military? Um, any self-talk that you might have had um, before you joined the service? Yeah, I was in a French class at the University of Florida, and it was September 11th. 2001 and a girl walked into the class crying to let us know that a plane had hit uh the twin towers and one of them and it looked like uh it was on purpose um and so spent the day watching this event unfold and um convincing myself that uh i wanted to join the military and um you know, do my part. So <clears throat> it was within a few weeks of that event. Uh, I was going to drop out of college and everyone in my family tried to talk me out of it. Uh, and then eventually my grandfather called. So both my parents were born in Cuba. Um, so they're, they're immigrants to the U S and my grandfather called and he started to tell me the story of what it was like when he came to the U S and it's a story that I have heard so many times before, but when, when grandpa wants to tell his story, you, you let abuelito, he gets to talk. Right. And so it's a very paterfamilias, uh, Latin culture thing. And, um, so he finishes his story about, uh, coming to the U S with four kids and working three jobs and pumping gas and delivering 
newspapers and working at a bakery and being a mechanic and fixing his own stuff and, and putting, you know, doing whatever he could to put my grandmother through college and uh, make sure that his kids had opportunity. And he says to me, you know, I told you that story. I said, no, well, why, why'd you tell me this story? He goes, um, he said it in Spanish and he says, uh, uh, because you owe me. Cause I didn't know you, but I did it for you. So now you owe me and my sacrifice to finish your college and then you can go join the army. And so that was the reason I didn't drop out and enlist. Uh, and instead I walked into the ROTC building and uh, signed up to, you know, join as soon as I graduated. Wow. That's an amazing story. That's one of those life-changing moments, I guess. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, I think that was a, a big reason that a, a bunch of people joined the military was that event. It's, um, thank, thank you for sharing that with me. Wow, I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Um, so what were your expectations as far as military life? What did you have in mind when you, I mean, so you went through ROTC, so you got a, a, a really good taste of the military before actually getting like fully engaged in the military. But did you have any expectations yeah. coming in that maybe? Um, yeah, a little bit. So one of the things about the way that I did ROTC, you know, this was 2002 to 2004. Um, and the war was really raging and we knew being in ROTC, uh, and, and knowing that, you know, my, my top preferred branches were going to be combat arms that we were going to war. It was not, there was a question in 2003 where my junior year, I got, I was like, oh no, we're going to miss it. Um, but, uh, obviously not, <laughs> um, but we knew that that was going to happen, right? So everything I did, college really became kind of secondary to me from the the military thing. It was, for me, my degree became a path to becoming a, an infantry officer. Um, and that was what I wanted to do. And, and you know, we, tr we actually trained really hard. Um, there was a, a group of us uh, that were, we, we focused on tactics, uh, learning everything we could about combat and warfare. And, you know, I graduated college. I, I could, you know, call for fire, call nine lines, uh, understood the weapon systems that we had and what were their, um, you know, the capabilities of different aircraft that would support an infantryman and, and all of the different artilleries and mortars and, you know, um, do combined arms fighting and, and, you know, how do I maneuver with tanks on the battlefield and all of this stuff. Right. So that was really my, my college education. The, the degree that I got was secondary to me. Then, you know, it was, I did, I studied just enough. I graduated with 3.0 GPA, like literally 3.07, like just barely squeaked that three. Um, and, and every minute, that uh, I wasn't really studying for school. I was studying for war and, and preparing for that. Um, it still was not what I expected, right? Uh, it's hard to, <clears throat> it, it's so surreal the, that, you know, you're, when you're in, in real combat and you're experiencing this level of violence that, um, we shouldn't need to experience as human beings, right? Like your brain almost doesn't even know how to process it. And so to me, it, it was, 
it felt like this surreal event that was um, truly separated from reality. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to describe it, kind of like this mental state that you're in. And it was, um, I was, you know, pursuing the task that I needed to do and, you know, following the, you know, call for fire and move troops and do all of the things that I knew that I was trained to do. Um, but experientially it felt, uh, <laughs> and it certainly felt like outside of, um, outside of everything else we experience every day, you know, it was this dreamlike experience. Uh, and maybe that was just my brain's way of handling this kind of, you know, traumatic event, uh, was to say, Hey, this isn't, this is kind of like hazy. This isn't super real, you know, type thing. Um, so I don't know that I expected that or, or, uh, counted on something like that happening. Although I had, I had, I understood how to fight. I didn't understand what, uh, how my body was going to react to fighting. How to, how to actually process what was actually going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I've, I've read many, many military books and know a bunch of people who've been in the combat combat situation. I mean, I deployed a couple of times, but never had to sh get in a combat fight with anybody, but, um, I've studied plenty about it, about taking in that surreal surrounding and it, and that's really what it is. It's what a lot of people say about it as well. Unfortunately, I don't know from firsthand experience, but, um, yeah, it's, it's devastating in a lot of ways. And, and I'm glad that people recognize that the PTSD and like the, the doctors are really actively aggressively trying to figure out ways to, to solve some of those psychological issues that people are dealing with. So, yeah. Hmm. At what point did you, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And it's like, you know, we're starting off on a, on a, on a <laughs> daisy downer or something. It's not really, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what the military is. You know, you deal with yeah. stuff. But, um, so it's very real and, and I appreciate your, your honesty and, and openness about it. Sure. Um, so at what point did you decide to get out? Um, what was the mental switch? Like what was the self-talk that sure. said, hey, it's time to go and I need to get out of the military? Um, well, you know, the, 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 the glamour of warfare kind of fades after you've been through it a few times. Um, you know, the, uh, I was reading Banner Brothers um, or – and there was a moment in there where it, I felt like a real connection to whoever the person that said it. And it says something like, um, you know, in your first firefight, you, you take a lot more risk and you do a lot more things that later on you certainly wouldn't do. Right. And, and, and I, I remember reading that and saying like, wow, that, that was, that's also very true. Right. The, the very first time is, you know, it's adrenaline, it's exciting. And, and I don't know, there's this kind of, strangely, there's a little bit of excitement into it because, you know, this is what I've been training for, for years. And now, you know, it's kind of like a firefighter getting his first, you know, rolling up on their first fire, right? This is your opportunity to do what you've been training for. But after a couple, then it's, um, I kind of 
like I'm not doing that, right? Like <laughs> your 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 risk acceptance level it starts to go down a little bit, and it's a you know I'm gonna hold on this you know this portion like that's a really big tree. That's the one I'm gonna get behind, or you know that rock will will, will be good cover, and um you know you take less less uh, there's less hesitation, you know, and yeah, but um uh, anyways, so. The glamour had the glamour had worn off a little bit, um, and uh, I, I eventually had had a kid, and so um, I was married. I, my son was was a few months old, um, and I was going through some interviews for some other cool guy work, and I noticed that most of the people that were interviewing me had pictures of kids and no spouses, and. Um, I asked finally one of them that had a picture of him and his wife. I said, Hey, what is the divorce rate divorce rate in this, in this program? And he like paused and, and stumbled and I could see like, he didn't want to say, and he's like, it's pretty high, man. I said, okay. Um, you know, you know, my son didn't ask to come into this world and, and, and uh, like, it's unfair to him. If, you know, if, if I pursue something that's going to make his life more difficult or even, you know, I was already tagged at that point that uh, I was going to be going back to Iraq. I was going to go back to the 82nd Airborne and, and, and you know, and um, my priorities in life had changed, right? Like, you know, I'd given up two years of, of combat time and I felt like, okay, I, I did, I did my part, you know, um, and, uh, and I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel like I had, like I had to do more, right? Certainly since then, there have been moments when it's like, man, I wish I'd have got that Green Beret and I wish I'd have, you know, pursued that special project and, you know, like done these, this really cool guy work that probably would have been neat. Um, but uh, I got three little babies and uh, a very strong marriage and we still like each other. So, you know, I think, I, I think <laughs> it was a good choice. Right. Made the logical decision. Yeah, I really, and I apologize if some of these questions like double over what's in your book because a lot of this stuff is in your. After reading your book, I wrote the questions, and then after reading, um, you know, the first chapter or so, uh, realize that they overlap a lot. But I think it's important for people to who may not have exposure to your books, who may not have exposure to you, to actually hear this this part of the story. So, um, okay, so the the first year of your transition after leaving the military. Um, what did that look like? I mean, how, how was that for you? Your Dude, it was so hard. Um, I had no idea how hard it was going to be. And, you know, um, I guess that was 10 years ago now, but um, the, your expectations of what you're getting yourself into is, like, oh, you know, everyone wants to hire a veteran and I'm going to make all this money and, and you know, um, and I'm not going to have to get up for PT and no one's going to be up my ass about whether or not I shaved and I can wear whatever I want and, and I'm going to have all this freedom, right? Um, what you don't count for is that every moment of my life is around the military, my friends my social circle, my work, um, and oftentimes my sense of uh, self-worth is tied 
to the military as well. You know, do I have the right badges and did I get the right medals? And, you know, is my PT score high enough and my body fat low enough and all of these things that, so your, 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 your psyche, how you look at yourself, how you think of yourself, the people that you talk to, the people you hang out with, the people that give you positive feedback, your friends, your work, all of that is changing. This isn't like someone deciding to leave Google and going to work for Microsoft, right? This is a lot like immigrating to another country, right? Like you are leaving everything that you know. Um, and, and now you are entering this other world that frankly, doesn't give a shit about you. Uh, and the one you just left kind of doesn't give a shit about you either. Right. So, (laughs) so, um, it was hard. And I, and I talk a little bit about this in, in CODIS battle drills that of, of finding that sense of purpose, um, in what I did and, and, and redefining how I looked at myself and what I valued out of myself. Um, and what I valued out of life and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Um, all of that is, this is like, and there's probably still some discovery going on now, 10 years later. Uh, but it took some time to, you know, reset from, um, the military life to now being a civilian and, you know, something about accountability when, when, when people are holding you accountable, um, as they do in the military, that, that, it's sort of in a weird, um, sadistic way. Uh, it's, it's another way of them showing that they care about you in some sense, right? Like there's, there's gotta be some care in, in how you're doing when you're out, like nobody gives a shit, right? <laughs> Nobody's calling to check on you, find out where you, why you're late for formation, et cetera. No. Nope. Yeah. So in that transition, that first year, did you already have a plan in place of like, I have a job lined up or I've got a few job contacts in the house? I did have a job. I did. I did get a job. Um, I actually doubled it for a while. Um, so I started work at John Deere before I was, I was still technically an officer. Um, so it was like two months I had overlap. So um, I did get the job situation figured out. I made some dumb financial choices because I was moving to Iowa and I thought, oh, I'm going to need a truck. So I bought this new truck and I had this payment on this truck, which was dumb um, and and had like no idea. And don't take on a new expense right as you're getting out of the military because you don't know. You've never had this expenses that you're going to have now. Like you have no idea what your monthly bills are going to be. You have no clue. And, and I can't tell you because depending on what job you get, they could be different because you could get an employer that's going to pay all your insurance or maybe one that doesn't pay any, or maybe the one that pays, you know, somewhere in the middle. And, you know, there's, there's all of these, uh, um, you know, new taxes that you're now paying that you weren't paying before. There's no breaks on those anymore. Right. So, uh, it's and also clothing, right? Like, and you have to choose that clothing. You gotta pick it out. You know? Color match, match the belt and the shoes. Yeah, yeah. Right. And what does your job require? Like, do you have to be business casual or not, or you know, whatever? So, um, there's a lot. So don't take on, like, you know, I wouldn't recommend buying a house in your first. You know, unless you know that you're never going to, you're never going to leave that location. Um, 
but you know, I, I wouldn't buy a house, um, except at John Deere, when they moved you, they bought your house for you. So, uh, if you couldn't sell it, so that one made sense. Um, so I guess there's always exceptions and stuff, but it, the, the point of, of this is to say to limit the financial strain that you're going to put on yourself and your family. Um, as you get out, uh, there's a, a whole new world of, um, tugs on that. And, um, you got to learn to live in new means. Yep. So, yeah. That's yeah, actually one of my favorite questions for retirees is like, if, if, and when you did, did you buy yourself a retirement gift and what was it? Right. And surprisingly, a lot of I mean, few people that I've interviewed so far, are like, yeah, no, I didn't buy any retirement gift. And they're actually ones that are, they're doing pretty well. I mean, after retirement, and it's usually, it seems to be, it's not the, it's not like the causation between the two things, but sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I say it's the same indicator. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, you bought a 3,000 square foot house for your retirement gift, but now you've got $2,500 in mortgage bills and utilities right. and all kinds of crap that you got to pay for. And your yep. retirement check's only half of what you made from the military. Exactly. Minus per diem, minus COLA, minus. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. So from the point where you left the military to the point you're at now, uh, was there any kind of noticeable progression or sequence that led you there to where you're at right now? And if so, could you describe that sequence? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that there was any like specific, uh, I don't know that it's anything anybody else could follow or, or should follow necessarily. Um, I have been willing to, try new things and take new risks and open up possibilities. Um, and like I, we talked about redefining what I value, what I, what I have learned about myself. Um, and so, you know, in the beginning I thought I wanted stability. So I looked for a large organization similar to the military that had a similar hierarchical structure and a lot of veterans inside of it. And, you know, moving from the army to John Deere, at least work wise, wasn't a big shift um, in in the culture of the area, right? Um, I, I fit in pretty well there. Uh, and then I moved around inside of Deer pretty quickly. And, and then, you know, eventually my wife wanted to come home to Arizona where she's from. And so went to Caterpillar and, and, and then kind of realized like, I want to try new things. I want to work on difficult problems. Um, that are hard to solve because whenever I got a difficult problem, that was what I found to be uh, the most fun. And those are the stories that end up in the book, you know, the, the couple stories and, and those are in the, in more in keep on leading, which is a more recent book than, than Conus battle drills. Um, it's about, you know, the stories that make it in there are the ones that were these really hard problems and, and everyone was basically saying there's no way to solve them and finding a way to solve it. Right. So, um, and that's what led me into this, this independent consulting thing that I've been doing now for a couple of years. Um, speaking of, by the way, Conus Battle Drills, for me, um, one, it was a little bit like therapy, being able to split everything out. Um, but at the same time, I will say it's, it's not written for everyone. Um, I've gotten, it's, there's been, it's, it's been pretty mixed feedback. It's got pretty good ratings on, on Amazon, but it is certainly, a love it or hate it type book. Uh, 
it is written for an infantry or, you know, some combat arms. Um, I have gotten, I have gotten some pretty rough feedback on the book of folks that like, um, also the world was different when I wrote it in 2015 than it is today. Uh, so culturally some things have changed and, um, you know, there's, there's been a couple that I almost, almost like pulled it off print just because it was, you know, people hated it so much like, man, okay. You know, maybe this doesn't need to be out there anymore. Um, so it's not for everyone. Uh, keep on leaning is much more on the corporate, you know, it's, it's designed for like a group deal, but the point of Conus battle drills and what it, what it did for me was it was an opportunity to get everything off my chest. Um, and, and, you know, that writing had a utility to it in helping me, you know, get through whatever the things I was getting through. And I've gone back and read it a couple of times or once, um, a couple of years ago. And, uh, and I was like, man, that dude was angry. Like <laughs> it was, I was, I was an angry boy when I wrote that book in, in 2015. Uh, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you had a, a lot of stuff going on in your life and you saw firsthand the transition and, and also on top of that, maybe getting some of that stuff out of your system that, that happened while you were in, in uniform, while you were in combat situations. So yeah, I totally, I mean, that's really the only reason to write a book is if you have it so ingrained in your head and it keeps you up at night, like that's an indicator like, Hey, maybe you should write this down. At least if not a blog post, write something, write yourself a notebook, do something. It's almost like your brain gives you permission when you do that to forget it and let it go. Right. It it wants to hold on to it as long as you haven't written it down. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in that process right now of writing stuff and it's actually surprising because I, because I engage with it every day. So um, Mm. it doesn't feel like a chore. And I think Mm. that, that makes it all the more okay for me to do it. And hopefully yeah. it turns into something. We'll see what happens. Um, okay, cool. So if, and when, uh, what was one of the biggest failure moments you've experienced after leaving the military and how did you process the stumbling point? Um, maybe some context of the time and place. It's hard for me to just the way that I approach things. Um, it's hard for me to focus or to remember a failure. I don't one. I don't um, generally frame things in success or failure, uh, which it. I know it sounds like really, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, cheesy. It sounds real cheesy. Really, like, Ooh, I don't see failure, right? Like there are times that I have generally, I have failed a class in college. That was a failure. Uh, and, uh, and I didn't make it through selection. That was a failure. Um, and in my defense, I got injured, but whatever. I mean, it would, I still didn't make it right. Uh, but beyond that, it was, uh, learning opportunities and things that, um, I, I can't say any one specific thing like, uh, I failed at this because I pulled out a lesson. I integrated that. And then I changed my behavior moving forward. And it's hard to say that was a failure based on that. Right. Like, so, um, 
uh, I spent two years as a supervisor at John Deere. And then I was like, oh, I want to try marketing. And then I did marketing for two years. And I was like, ah, I'd rather bring new products to market. So I did program management for two years. And then it was like, well, let's go to this Caterpillar place. And um, went to work for a dealership in Caterpillar and spent four years in the same spot. And I was like, okay, I need to go do something different, right? Um, that's like essentially the last 10 years after getting out of the military before joining and, and just starting to do consulting work based on the things I've learned. I could look back at some of those events and say, oh, you know, I failed at being a supervisor because I didn't keep it up or I failed at, you know, this or I failed at the other thing. Uh, but to me, it was like, oh, I learned about me. I learned about my skills, my strengths, my weaknesses. Um, I learned to play to my strengths and not worry about the things that I'm not great at. And um, actually, um, and keep on leading. There's a whole chapter called Tom Brady Can't Block, which is about stop worrying about people's weaknesses, focus on their strengths, right? Imagine if you spent time and money trying to get Tom Brady to, to work on his weaknesses, like managers often want people to do. Like, why? Why would you take, you know, now you're talking about possibly one of the greatest players of all time. And he's really terrible at this one thing. So we just don't have him do that one thing, right? Like we just have him do the things he's really great at. And so I try to like internalize that same outlook about myself and say, what am I really good at? And I want to focus on doing those things that I'm good, in, I'm good at and not worry so much about this, you know, binary success versus failure uh, model. So that is like the longest non-answer that I could possibly give you. <laughs> it actually brings up a great point and and an additional question. So do you think that that, I mean, is that part of your DNA by, by the way you were brought up? Or do you think you learned that tool set through the military, through maybe the ranger training or something like that? Ooh, I don't know. Um, huh. That's interesting. I, I have never, uh, I don't know where, where, or when that came up. Um, I don't know. I was an only child, so that might have something to do with it. My parents always say how awesome I was, so that might have that might have an effect. <laughs> uh, Ranger school certainly does that to you too, because um, you know you fail your way through that course, basically, uh, just suck all the way through it. <laughs> a warrant officer school is the same for me. I mean, it's not as tough as Ranger school by any means, um, but yeah, it's. I feel like it's a trait that you have to actively try to learn it uh, i don't think it comes natural to a lot of people and i guess it depends on your your environment that you were raised in and of course like positive reinforcement and the nurture and and the nature um but i'm not sure where i learned this um but it's certainly i tell this to my kids anytime i hear them say anything negative about themselves um i tell it to my students i teach a i teach a class at the university i tell it to my coworkers. whenever i hear someone do this Whenever I hear someone talk poorly about themselves or degrade themselves in any way, I, I mentioned to them that you need to guard the thoughts you have about yourself and the things you say about yourself because you are listening to yourself, right? And so you speak those things into reality. Oh, I'm really not good at computers, right? Okay, you're not going to be. With that attitude, you are 100% never going to be good at computers, right? Like I'm trying to teach you something. Oh, I'm just not good at Excel, right? Like you're making that a reality because you're saying that, right? This isn't, I'm not smarter than you and I know how to do it, right? So let's figure this out together. And how, but 
don't talk, you know, have that positive, that positive thought about yourself. Um, uh, especially if you're a man, because we do not receive compliments. Um, people do not tell you good things about you. Uh, and when we do, we don't know how to take those compliments. <laughs> we just, we freeze. We, we're like deer in headlights when somebody gives us a compliment. It comes so far out of left field. You're just like, what the? So it, everyone else is going to tell you what a piece of shit you are. You don't need to tell yourself that too. You need to be telling yourself the opposite. Um, so you can train your mind to do that. And then your behaviors and your actions and your performance will reflect that inner conversation that you have about yourself. Um, so be very guarded about, uh, about what you say about yourself in your head or out loud. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's, that's one of the, I feel like that's one of those, those tipping points in anybody's life that once they get past that, that degrading self-talk and not to go delusional to the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Don't become a, a narcissist. Sometimes you may need a little bit. <laughs> so good at sharpening pencils. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Um, how about one of the most impactful moments um, post-military that, and what did you possibly learn from it? Uh, it could be time in the military as well, but one of those moments where you really just had this profound, like, wow, this is something really interesting. Cause I think I, I assume, but I think you would be the, kind of person that would um, process things like that? Like when you've come across a profound, like with your children, yeah. when your child was born, you're like, Hey, this is it. I want to spend time with my child. I don't want him to be growing up without seeing his father for, you know, six years, seven years at a time. So. Well, that was the example I was going to give. So you stole that one from me. Uh... <laughs> um, so I, I, I think there was a, there's been a, there's been a few moments um, working in business. Um, so, you know, I had an opportunity to work for a fortune 100. I've worked for, um, medium sized business. I've, I've helped small business and kind of seen a lot of things in different ways. Um, you know, there's been understanding of how, how these organizations make money. Um, that was something that I, I genuinely did not, I thought I understood it, but I genuinely, I understood it in a theoretical framework in the reality. Right. And, and being exposed to the effects of, you know, kind of lean manufacturing and, and different processes and schools of thought uh, and approaches and, and just how, um, how intricate, things are, you know, I worked in a factory where we brought in bare steel on one end and we shipped out machines on the other, right? And getting to see that steel go from flat to bend, you know, or flat to cut, cut to bend, bend to weld, weld to assemble, assemble to paint, paint to pack out, pack out to shipping, right? Like this whole like process of how we, uh, how we create goods and services, um, and then understanding the marketing piece and, and what drives our decisions and, and how do we get people, how do we convince people and, and using, 
emotion and logic at the same time to kind of drive people towards buying decisions. Um, and just today in class, we had a discussion. One of the students was talking about student discounts and we had a discussion about why did companies do that? And, and their framework was, well, we don't have a lot of money. And, and, you know, it, it, their, their thought process was around, you know, looking internally and saying, these are my buying reasons. So that must be their selling reasons. And I, and I finally told them and said, every reason you've given is a reason to help you. And I'm just going to tell you, the companies don't want to help you. They want to make money. So under that framework, what do you think is the reason why they would offer student discounts? And one of them finally clicked and he said, well, you told us once before that the easiest people to sell to are people that have already bought from you. And we're, and I said, exactly. And you're in your early twenties. Every one of you here is under 23 years old. So if I get you to buy my product at 22, I've got a customer for 40 years. Yep. Right. Um, and so that sort of thinking about the economy and how things work and the true cost of labor and doing estimates of, you know, how, how much it's going to cost me to develop this new product and, and, and to staff it and run it and all of these things. Um, it actually ignited a new passion for me. Right. And, and, and it gave me this new place of saying, this is really cool um, to solve these very difficult problems of, of bringing something to market. And now, you know, post pandemic world where our, our supply chain has been massively, massively disrupted and it probably has a backlog that will exist for one to two more years before we've cleared it. Right. Like, and watching, how do we adjust to this? Right. So, um, I don't know that it's been one moment, but maybe a series of things that have really ignited this love for me for the marketplace um, and, and what happens in the market. And maybe in a, in a lot of ways, the same way that I studied warfare, now I'm studying, you know, producing goods uh, and, uh, and and finding a similar passion inside of that. Yeah. I mean, studying an economy, really, if you, if you step back from it, you're basically yeah. studying the economy from A to Z. It's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's stuff that they don't teach you in school, really not in regular school anyway, maybe at right. college, but even then you, you, you have a professor who is either knows it from experience or knows it from reading a book. Right. Right. Experience always wins. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> that's, that's awesome. I, I might actually see if I can sign up for that class. <laughs> or at least sit in. I'm going to do a Steve Jobs and just sit in the class. And I'm actually right. <laughs> um, did you ever get a chance to travel Space A while you were on active duty? Uh, no, I actually, but I did travel Space A when I was a kid. Um, oh, really? So my, dad, my dad was in the Navy. He was a, uh, he's a retired Naval officer. Um, <laughs> and we lived in Rhoda in Naples and we traveled Space A back to the U S whenever we could. Back to uh, Jacksonville. Huh? What's that? Was it still the rotator between Jacksonville and, and, and Rota? Yeah. Um, and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on it a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I don't, I was a young kid, but I think we hopped, we took a, a, a flight. It was like a hopper or whatever from Naples to Rota. And it was like, I think it was a C-130. I, I don't know. It was, you know, the strap, the, the strap seats. Again, I was 12, 13 years old. So 
I don't remember it exactly. You know, I just remember being like, this is not a commercial aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> so your experience wasn't stopped. Yeah. <laughs> and then you joined the military years later and got to spend more time on the C-130 jumping out of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Many more takeoffs and landings uh, in my... <laughs> we actually had a kid that when we were going to Afghanistan um, was really nervous in the plane. And everyone's like, what are you nervous about? He's like, I've never landed in a plane before. <laughs> <laughs> he had... He had taken like 12 flights and he had never landed in a plane. That's amazing. Uh, so yeah, that was his first landing. He was in, in Shannon, Ireland. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's the perfect place to get your first landing. I'm sure that was right. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, how do you feel about mentors in business? Do you think they're important? Um, have you had any past mentors or present mentors who really made a, an impact on your life, good or bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, somebody told me this way young age, and I don't remember who it was, 18 or 19. I took it to heart and started doing it immediately. Um, and all through my life, um, what I have found is that maybe uh, very few people meet are, are holistically someone that I would look up to. Um, However, there is something that they're really good at that I can learn from. Um, and that is how, you know, I will focus my conversations with them on the, that thing, right? So what, whatever it may be, um, you know, guys that are, if they're doing a job that I want to do, or they've had a job that I want to have. Hey, how did you get into this job? What can I do? How do I make myself stand out for this position? Um, what are some tasks that I can take on now? What is the best path? Is do you know anybody that can introduce me in this world? Um, and and uh, absolutely, absolutely, have had it. Uh, continue to pursue it, even in you know now in my consulting world, I'm looking at guys that are making um, almost absurd levels of money. Uh, uh, doing this exact same work and, and whenever I get the chance, right. It's, it's, Hey, let's go have lunch. You and me, right. It just, or walking in the hallway, walking in the hallway and I'll ask a question about, you know, how did you get into this? What are you looking for? How do you find your clients? How do you, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and they just come to ex expect it after a while. And people like that, you know, people, people like to give advice, we don't like to get it so much, but they love to give it. Um, and they're happy to make introductions. And it's funny. I, I've, I've made, I recently made it. So I, when I got into consulting, I talked to a guy who I knew was in it, that we knew each other from before. Um, and I've now made a referral for him to get, to get a job consulting with me on this other company. Right. So it's like, it's come full circle where, you know, the beginning was like, Hey man, how do I get a job? He was like, here's where you can go. And then I got it. And then they're like, hey, do you know anybody that can do this kind of work? And I'm like, actually, yeah, I do. You know, <laughs> um, so absolutely recommended. Uh, can't recommend it enough. It is certainly something that uh, everyone should try and pursue and do in their life. Yeah, I, I, I hate that it's looked at. It's a, like such a woo-woo thing. And a lot of, you know, if you watch a lot of stuff on YouTube or check out some of these online coaches, 
uh, the 23 year old life coaches. <laughs> I mean, they say it and it, and it is important. I think it's important. And that's why I asked. Um, but I, I like your approach. Uh, it's how I approach books. Like I, if I open a book, I'm not looking to get like, is this going to be the best book ever, but I'm looking to find one or two golden nuggets in that book. And if it happens to be more then that's just added bonus. Right. Right. And then that in, in that process of repeating that over and over, you start to find better books along the way or better mentors in this case. So that's great. If you could go back in time, if you had a time machine and you could have a short, let's say 20, 30 minute meeting with your 16 year old self, what would that conversation look like? And where exactly would that conversation take place? Time, place. Uh, well, when I was 16, I was in Naples, Italy. Um, and it would, what's that? A great place, by the way. It is a hard place to live. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, the one thing I can think of is like, <laughs> I want to give myself investment advice, right? Like that's, <laughs> uh, that probably stems from the fact that I, I've, you know, there's five people in my family that I have to feed and, you know, we come with costs to do anything. So probably money's on the, making money's on the top of my mind right now in life. Um, uh, and you know, also you know, continue to value relationships, um, and, and, you know, pursue that and, and set that as your, uh, but I don't know. I, the thing about that question oftentimes is that it, it stems around like, what are the things you wish you could change? Um, and I don't really want to change anything because, uh, if I did, then I wouldn't be where I am today. Right. I wouldn't have the things that I have today. And, um, you know, uh, that's not, that's not a sacrifice I'd want to make. Right. Like, I don't know that I'd want to live a life without my three babies, you know? Uh, so whatever I made, I made some mistakes, but if I tell that kid not to make those mistakes, uh, then, then I don't end up where I am. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, the reason why I asked that question, uh, and specifically 16 years old, that's one of, it's like that time frame where you're very, very, you're on the cusp of becoming an adult. You're coming out of childhood stage and you're so very malleable, almost as malleable, I would say, as the time when you're like zero to two years old, right? You're, you're taking in all this information and you're thinking actively about the future, about being an adult, going to college, having a job, having a wife and kids, like those kind of thoughts start to enter your mind around that age, 16, 17. Uh, so it's a really, a really transitional age. And sometimes you can get really bad information at that age, which will then steer you down some stupid path and put you through a lot of pain. Right. Or you could get good advice from a good coach or a mentor or a teacher or somebody who could, that could really change your life and set it off in a direction that you never thought was possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't be a good mentor to a 16 year old then. <laughs> uh, have integrity in everything you do. Uh, absolutely. Oh, and I actually got that lesson as a kid. So, um, um, kind of a neat story and that I think it's in both books. Uh, I lied to my dad one time and it was younger than 16. I think I was like 
11 or 12. And um, he knew I was lying. And I, I didn't think he had figured it out. And um, he, he grounded me for like the whole summer and came in after he, as he was telling me that. And he tells me, hey, what, what is the most valuable thing you own? And I kind of looked around the room and, and he's like, son, it's, it's not in your room. And he goes, it's your principles. And I kind of, you know, and he goes, look, men can take your property. They can take your freedom. They can take your family. They can even take your life. But the one thing that only belongs to you and it's only up to you to give away are your principles. No one can ever steal that from you. So don't ever give them away. And that was his response to me lying to him. <laughs> so that one stuck with me. Um, and it was a valuable lesson and certainly one that I'm going to try to impart on my own children. Uh, it's a good guide, a good barometer to be on that side. Pardon me for asking, and, and please, I apologize if it's intrusive, but uh, is your father still around? Is he still alive? He is. Wow. Yep. Uh, he is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he might be a good one to talk to. Uh, he is currently, um, he's at Fort Hood. He's the director of, he's a psychologist. And so he's a psychologist at Fort Hood, the director of something there. Uh, I don't know exactly what. Um, but he just arrived. Now. What's that? I said that makes total sense now, the, what, what he told you back then. Yeah. <laughs> well, a Cuban refugee and a psychologist. So it kind of put those two together. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. That's a very, very stoic uh, way of responding. He reached about 2,000 years back and, and pulled it out at the right moment. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, we went to Termopile, by the way, and uh, walked that battlefield, which is very different today than it was um you know, when, when they fought the Persians there. Uh, but yeah. that was a staple in our home. The, the Athenian and, and the Spartan warrior trope. Uh, we had a lots of memorabilia and, and visited that area often. So That's yeah, it was, it makes sense that you would make that association. <laughs> <laughs> So on that same note, uh, and actually just leveraging the, the story about your father, um, who's been one of the most impactful people in your life up to this point? Well, my teenage years was definitely my dad. Um, it, but then later it was, it's probably been my wife, um, and helping me discover, things about myself that maybe I didn't want to, sometimes you just need an outsider to tell you, you know, um, there have been points in this journey of, of self-employment where we were kind of struggling financially. Um, and I was ready to just go and get another nine to five. Um, and <laughs> so here we are scraping and she tells me, don't do that. Right. Like, um, you're, you were absolutely miserable through that. And at least now you're happy. So, um, we will figure it out financially, you know, whatever, but, but don't go, don't go back to that 
to that grind, right? That's not who you are. You like the, uh, you like things to be different. You like the unexpected. You, you need to go into a company and work for three months and then leave, right? And go do it again somewhere else. Um, and she's been absolutely right. Like, you know, and, and what's funny is that it was like a month after that conversation, I got, you know, well, probably the largest contract I've ever gotten. And I'm making more money than I ever have in my life. Um, doing that very work, you know, for, for six months with a company that had a really difficult problem that they needed solved. Um, and in a few months we're going to be done there and we'll have to find another one. So <laughs> that's incredible. That's, uh, it's really incredible. Just thank, thank her from me for, for all she's done for you. Cause maybe we wouldn't have ever crossed paths if that didn't happen. So uh, I totally appreciate it. That's really, that's, that's what it's all about. Just being supportive. Like if nothing else, like that's the baseline that you should be doing as a human being. Uh, that's great. That's really great. Okay. Let's shift a little bit slightly. Um, if you were to give a short commencement speech to a room full of transitioning military members, usually it's college kids, but we're going to do military members because that's what we're all about. Uh, and assuming you only have 20 minutes to talk, uh, what would you say to them? What would the topic or the thesis be for that, for that talk? I think a lot of that would do with some of the conversation we've already had, right? About, um, the reminding, letting them know about the challenges they're going to face, um, and that it's going to be hard and that it's going to be lonely and that you're giving up and you're leaving, um, more than just a job. And, uh, you know, one, that's a, that's a preparatory warning that this is what you're going into, but then reminding them of everything they've come through you're capable of taking on this challenge and doing well um, and succeeding and whatever it may be. Um, you have the capacity for what's coming. You've, you've, you can do this. Right. Um, and then finally, the last would be a little bit pragmatic. Like don't make stupid financial decisions right now. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> uh, probably the last piece of, you know, don't buy anything super expensive. Um, if half of the people in this room are going to get a job and leave it in the first year. Uh, so just be prepared for that. And you think you know what you want to do and you think you know what you are going to be happy with. Uh, location wise and all of this stuff, you don't know. So don't tie yourself to the point where you can't pick up and move or change things. Um, you know, be careful what you, what you, um, uh, shackle yourself to, uh, in, in the next, you know, three to five years. That's great advice. How important do you think college education has been to your success? Uh, and would you recommend someone pursuing a college degree who is getting out of active duty that doesn't have a degree? Um, would it just pertain to specific areas of uh, business or fields in the job force? It's been very important. And I admit that begrudgingly. I wish it wasn't. Um, because the utility of what I learned in the classroom versus what I've learned 
experientially. The experiential uh, learning is infinitely more valuable than anything that I picked up in a classroom. Um, so if someone were, I, I don't think that those degrees are the reason for any of my acquired knowledge, experiences, and skills. I don't think I acquired any of that through my college education. Um, so as far as a value to me as an individual in growth, individual growth, very, very little, very little. Unfortunately, uh, those are gates by which we are measured in the civilian world. And the expectations are that you will have these qualifications um, in order to be able to do the job. So the MBA and the bachelor's degree get me in the room. Uh, they're just like had to do's, right? Um, but not necessarily the way you phrase your question. I feel like I have to like, right. Like how, 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 how instrumental were they? Well, um, it made me more competitive and it got me in the room and it let me interview for positions. Um, I did not, I didn't have any major life-changing takeaways and learnings and things that I picked up during those experiences, the getting those degrees that I turned around and used on a daily basis. Hmm. There might be some, let me, let me give it a little bit more credit. Some of the history stuff uh, I may have picked up and maybe a little bit of, you know, financial accounting and things like that, which kind of these sort of high level principles, but um, would I recommend it? Um, if you are interested in a long-term career in the corporate world of leadership, yeah, you kind of need to do it and it sucks and it's dumb and it shouldn't be a requirement because, you know, you know more without having had, like, you're not going to learn anything new getting a degree, but it is, a, it's just one of those requirements that you have to do and you have to have. Um, so Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I recommend you get one. If that's what you want to do, if you want to work in trades, if you don't want to be in leadership or, you know, um, then, then no, right. There's no, there's no real value in that. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your candidness on that. That's, um, it's a question that I see tossed back and forth a lot. It's a question that I struggle with myself a lot. And, uh, and I like that answer. Um, you kind of have to set up your own pedigree to be able to go into some of those careers, but it's, you know, business management or, or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a tough, tough cookie to crack for sure. <laughs> and there's a ton of people that may or may not have used their, you know, their GI bill or post nine 11 or whatever it is now. So, and the investment of time, that's the other piece of it. Yeah. So something that I think about a lot and I, I think about when I'm talking to people about military and being in the military, retiring, all those different things. If you could make one post on LinkedIn that you know for sure would be reaching a mil millions of people, let's just call it 5 million people across the globe, and you only had two to three sentences to, to do that post, what would that post say? Almost like a digital billboard. 
I don't know. I saw this. You you sent me this beforehand. And I was like, yeah. man, I don't know. There's this battle that goes on in my brain of like, um, you know, you can use if you could use it for good, right? To like for like societal good of teaching and imparting some sort of wisdom. That's one way. <laughs> uh <laughs> But you know, five million people like that's an opportunity to make some money, right? So, like, <laughs> hey, it could totally be that way. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. To right? <laughs> people would say, "Hey, this is what I would put in the post." Don't be an asshole. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Uh, don't be an asshole. I like that one. I, I actually, one of my mechanics had that in his toolbox. He had a little thing that said, "Don't be a dick." Actually, is what it said on his thing, and. Uh, <laughs> And I was like, you know what? That is a great um, basis for leadership, right? You want to lead people? Don't be an asshole. Uh, it's very simple. You know, that's good. Uh, I would also probably tell him to buy my book so that I could make some money off the post. <laughs> <laughs> so along the same lines of, of business leadership, business management, and getting yourself into the business world. Um, what are your thoughts on personal brand and how important you feel it is being successful in the next decade coming up? Yeah. Uh, I will tell you that every, okay. So you're going to go, when you apply to a job, you're going to put your thing in the ATS um, or some sort of systems. There's going to be some sort of digital filtration system. And then, and then there's going to be a list of candidates. Um, so the next thing I do as a hiring manager is I look them up and, and that's pretty much what everybody's going to do. They're going to, you know, I'll read the resume. Actually, I'll read the resume. And then if I think, okay, this person could move forward, I'll look them up. Um, so you'll get people looking at your LinkedIn profile or, or whatever it is um, to make an assessment about, excuse me. The other thing is um, I've got a pretty strong LinkedIn presence. I oftentimes get offers for positions uh, without unsolicited uh, people saying, Hey, you know, we've got this opportunity, blah, blah, blah. 98% of the time, they're kind of junky. I don't, I'm not really interested. Also, I'm not really interested in nine to five. So, you know, there's that piece. Uh, but a strong enough personal brand where people start associating you with a particular thing, um, that is extremely valuable, right? If you think about, um, Joe Rogan, you have an opinion about that person. He is making $150 million because he's been successful at establishing a personal brand. Elon Musk, um, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, uh, you know, um, uh, what's that guy from the Daily Show? Trevor Noah, right? Like all of these people that we know as celebrities, um, for one way or another, they have a personal brand associated and simply thinking about that individual generates a feeling about them, right? And feelings are what we make decisions based off of, not facts. As much as you've heard the facts don't care about your feelings thing, human beings, this is a marketing thing, I'll tell you, emotion drives decisions, not facts, which is why when you're trying to debate somebody and you may drop a fact on them, that runs counter to what their beliefs are, you will notice that they don't change their beliefs based on the facts because our beliefs aren't driven by fact. They're driven by how we feel, what we want to uh, feel. Uh, so how important is your personal brand? I would say it's very important. 
um, don't have a DA photo as your LinkedIn profile. Uh, I'm not going to hire that guy because he's his his personality is way too tied with his military. He needs to he needs to loosen up a little bit more, kind of get out of that a little bit. Um, and if I if I call you and, and you say Roger on the phone during the thing, like it's not. It's not a it's not a thing that I'm going to I'm going to I'm not going to disqualify you over it, but it is going to raise some concerns and stuff. So, um, you know, the military shouldn't be your personality. Um, and certainly things, you know, every day I use analogies of things that, you know, I'm creating a talk in one of my clients offices. Right? Like, yeah, we steal this. We steal these ideas. We use these ideas and, and we relate to people with our experiences in the military. Um, but if we, you know, can't go to work without, a, without commenting about someone not having a straight gig line, right? Like you, you gotta, you gotta pull off of that. Anyway, personal brand, very important. If you could name uh, one, two, three books that have influenced your choices or your decisions over the years, greatly impacted your life. What would some of those be? Yeah. Okay. So um, the Bible and it, it Again, this is another one that feels a little bit, um, what is uh, the word I'm looking for? Anyway, cheesy, I guess, you know, like, like a canned answer type thing that you sort of have to, but I really do, you know, I, I try and read it almost every day, um, and, and pick up lessons, uh, and behaviors and things that, you know, I should, I should, what are the expectations of me? Um, so that, that is certainly one of them. Um, beyond that, um, I, it's hard to pick like another two. Uh, I have many books on the bookshelf and it stems from like what my, <laughs> my particular interests are of the day. You know, am I trying to, Am I trying to learn about business? Am I trying to learn about selling? Am I trying to learn about branding, marketing, um, social media usage or whatever? Um, and, and taking these little bits and pieces from each one. Um, I think Jocko Willick's Extreme Ownership was also really good. Um, and But what's interesting about it is that what it also did was it motivated me to write my own leadership book. Right. So um, I used it as a tool to train other leaders and then realized that there were some things that were lacking in this particular, ver this particular book that I could use uh, or that I could change in my own story to do that. And, and it's funny that I'll, I hear a lot of people when they pick up, keep on leaving, they'll send me a message and be like, it, in the beginning, it felt a lot like extreme ownership. Uh, and it's like, well, that, <laughs> It sort of was the motivation for for, for writing the book. Uh, so begrudgingly, I guess in this case, I have to give Jocko credit uh, for making me want to write a book um, through his own through his own writings. I don't know. I can't think of a third one right now. I'm well, drawing a blank. Let me, let me pivot real quick. Um, in your in your reading of the Bible, and probably your whole life, I would imagine. Um, what are a couple verses that really give you that kind of north star that that guiding principle. Yeah. Um, well, it, the, so one that's interesting for me is, uh, first Peter three fifteen, which is, um, it, so I haven't my whole life, uh, been a 
biblical guy. So I kind of grew up very much in an atheist, uh, similar, a soft atheist household. Uh, we didn't go to church. We didn't really talk a lot about God. Um, and, and I kind of reached the conclusion about faith on my own through what's called apologetics. Uh, and first Peter three fifteen is, um, the verse says, always be prepared to give a defense for what you believe for the hope that is within you and do so with gentleness and kindness and respect or something along those lines. Um, and, um, so it's an apologetic, uh, the, the word that Peter uses for defense is apologia, which is means to defend. Um, and apologetics for me is really how I have grown in my faith. For a lot of people, that's not the case that, you know, it's experiential. It's, um, you know, they, they faith through feeling kind of thing. For me, it's been the evidence that has driven me towards leaning in closer to God. Um, and so, you know, that is the, the evidentiary verse on that. Um, and then, uh, you've got first Corinthians 15, which is the, um, um, Paul, he recites the sort of the creed, the early creed. Yes, I give to you what's given to me. And it's, it's kind of like the Christian faith in a few lines, uh, where, where Paul is giving us like, this is, this is the deal. This is how this goes down. Um, Isaiah 53, it's another apologetic piece, uh, written a few thousand years before Christ, which I think is kind of cool. Um, everyone says John three sixteen. um, you know, uh, you've heard that one before. Uh, the book of James, almost in its entirety, is like the the whole thing is almost highlighted in um, uh, in my in my Bible. Um, Matthew twenty eight, uh, another one, which is uh, you know, go and make disciples. Um, uh, I don't know. There's a few others. That That's great. Just oh. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to go and read this. I read it from time to time. I'm not a religious person, really. Um, yeah. I grew up kind of on my own <laughs> figuring out religion. Yeah. Um, but I do read it from time to time. Um, so I'll definitely look those up and also post them in the, in the notes. That's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Well, let me ask this first. Do you have a pet? I do have a pet. Okay. Um, yeah. For the first time, it's what a dog. A dog. What kind of dog? dog. Uh, he's a, a labradoodle and a hound. He's a he's a mutt. And so it was a, a little bit of a. I don't know that you could call it a rescue so much as the parents didn't plan on these this litter, and so he was from a, you know, how do we how do we get rid of this litter type thing? And my wife fell in love, and it was COVID. And we were all at home and I said, well, I've always been against getting a dog because of how much we like to travel, but we're not going anywhere for a while. So this would be a good opportunity. Nice. And yeah. so on, along that same lines, uh, do you have a favorite animal? And if so, like what's the specific character, character, uh, the feature that, that draws you to that animal? No, I don't, I don't know that I have anyone. In particular, I mean, obviously, I like my dog, um, uh, and he's my favorite boy, uh, my buddy. But beyond that, I don't know that uh, I marvel at nature. At mm-hmm. um, I don't know that there's ever been a like a single particular 
creature that just really catches, you know, like that I'm, I feel mesmerized by, mm-hmm. you know, um, no, that's, that's good though. I, I like the, the answer to it about marveling at nature. I think that's actually also important. It's kind of the reason why I put that question in there. It seems a little <laughs> bit out of the field, um, <laughs> but it kind of gets really specific because marveling at nature is a little bit broader. So dig down, but now that's actually a really good point. I'm very, very in context of that question. So it's mm. perfect. Um, if you had the opportunity and the means to invest $10 million in something you're passionate about that many, many people that know you wouldn't know about you, uh, what would this be and why? It could be a charity, it could be an orchestra, a kid's club, anything. Yeah, see, the problem is that I would take that $10 million and I would invest it in like 10 different things. <laughs> That's fine. That's an answer too. So, you know, like there's, uh, I, I would certainly do um, continue with my real estate, uh, investing. Um, I do some, some multifamily investing on the side, mostly on the passive side. Um, there's a lot of charities out there that, uh, I'd love to be able to give money to, um, and help out, um, some local, you know, very, very local kind of Tucson specific ones. And, and, you know, in my networking, um, that I do, you run into a lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice to just be able to help somebody out sometimes. Right. Um, so, uh, and I think that is also, you know, now that we've injected the Bible into this conversation and biblically as a Christian, that is kind of something that we're expected to do. Right. Um, a lot of people want to evangelize all over the world, uh, and, and miss the evangelism opportunities next door. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're expected to behave a certain way and, and is through our, through our living example, um, is, uh, our greatest testimony. Right. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, uh, I, that probably the multifamily thing is the one that maybe folks don't know. Cause I don't talk about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about to sell an apartment complex now and, uh, pretty excited about that. I've got a little fraction of the deal. Uh, but it's still pretty nice. <laughs> That's great. So it's a good answer. Um, okay. So I know we've gone for about an hour and some change. I want to definitely be respectful of your time. Um, and so I'll start to wrap it up real quick. Um, but are there any parting words, anything that we didn't cover that you maybe want to mention to the audience of all 12 people out there listening <laughs> at the moment, but hopefully in the future, maybe more. Yeah. No, man. Uh, I, I think if you, um, if you're interested in hearing more or, you know, have some questions or approaching these decisions, um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn every day, pretty much uh, a little bit less now. I'm kind of deep in, execution phase with my current client. So I haven't been posting nearly as much as I used to, uh, but uh, it's a good place to find me and it's actually me. It's not, you know, some sort of bot and um, I will get to you as soon as I have the opportunity, but I do try to respond to every non sales email that I get. Get that. I'm, I'm putting that caveat in there on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would, I don't know. I mean, my email's out there in the public, so 
uh, and I've always been kind of that way about it, but I know it's not a, it's not always a good move because then you just open yourself up to like full frontal attack. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, into the LinkedIn messaging deal, right? Yeah. So like, if, yeah. Inside of that network. Right. Yep. It's all fun and dandy. Good. Yeah. That would be my, my other thing. Um, if they want to learn more about you, that would be LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, any other links to the books uh, or any other links that you want to provide me afterwards? Uh, I can throw in the notes. Sure. At the bottom. Uh, look, Lewis, thank you very much. I'm super, super, super um, humbled by your presence here today. I really appreciate the talk and the time. And uh, thank you for helping to build this out and Hopefully this is going to be helpful to some people who are trying to make that transition from military to civilian and don't have things figured out because there's not a ton of information out there. The transition process is really fast and furious and you, you miss a lot of things along the way. So yep. trying to pull out some of those really important points and, and also the, the emotional and mental things that go on and you speak to in your books a lot. Um, so anybody that's, watching or listening, uh, I would definitely check those out at least the first few chapters. I don't know how deep into the book you're going to get and, uh, try not to send hate mail back. If you, if you see something that really triggers you because, uh, it's, it's really raw and honest. And I, and I think it's a hundred percent correct. I think that book, those books couldn't be written any other way. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Yep. And, uh, be sure to stay tuned and we'll have some more interviews coming up. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for being here today. It means a lot to me. Thank you. All right.